0: This is Undisciplined, academic by nature, undisciplined in practice. I am Dr. Karee Banton, Director of African and African-American Studies and Professor of History at the University of Arkansas. Now let's get into it. So Matthew. Yes. Today we're going to talk about. Prisons. Okay. Mass incarceration. And when I talk about prisons, I like to start off with this quote. Have you read The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander? Oh, it's on your bookshelf. It's on my bookshelf. <sighs> Michelle, bro. you up there, girl. <laughs> yes, girl, you're in the bookshelf. <laughs> She's
1: a good company, too.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Is she up there. Wow. Well, that's not it. like, how, like, why did you get The New Jim Crow?
1: I. You know, we've talked about this some on the podcast, but I spent some time in St. Louis and, um, you know, St. Louis is one of those cities where there's a lot of racial history that white people don't like to talk about. And for me, uh, I heard about the new Jim Crow, the book by Michelle Alexander, um, in the midst of uh, Ferguson happening, Mm -hmm. Uh and really learning about how did we get here? why do we continue to stay here and why is nothing changing? Oh, wow. Um, and so I got to hear Michelle Alexander speak at, in St. Louis um, and was really interested to see how many white people were in the crowd for this conversation because this was at the St. Louis historical museum. Okay. I'm taking us off the rails here, but, no, but this I, is great. It's
0: fantastic story.
1: Uh, this was at the St. Louis historic museum and, uh, it was probably 70, 30 white people, 70 white people uh, on, on a percentage level. Okay. It was about 70% white people and 30 percent you know, people of color at this offense. Okay. And I think part of that was there was a lot of interest from folks who, you know, whether they were transplants or they were people who just, wanted to better understand the city they lived in and understand how they got to this place. Um, You know, Michelle Alexander was a great touchpoint. Right. For people to better understand, okay, you know what you're talking about here. We've just had this really radical experience here in St. Louis. Let's understand the connection, how we got here and what we can do to make things different.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's a great summary. And I saw Michelle Alexander, too. Apparently, she went to Vanderbilt.
1: Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So around 2011,
0: 2012, uh, uh, I was at Vanderbilt and she gave, I think, one of the big distinguished lectures. Mm -hmm. And I was just like transfixed. As you were saying, Michelle Alexander, the new Jim Crow, right, thinking about the prison industrial complex, kind of connected, how is slavery related to this current situation that we're in, you know? And I always wanted to know these things, you know, because as a 19th century historian, I didn't want to just, like, I want to know how me studying abolition is connected to poverty today. It's connected to why are black people experiencing crime and violence and, you know, high incarceration. I want to know what the connecting thread is. And she puts so much of that in perspective and nothing did it so much as that opening paragraph in her book. She writes, Javarius Cotton cannot vote. Like his father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather, he has been denied the right to participate in our electoral democracy. Cotton's family tree tells the story of several generations of black men who were born in the United States, but who were denied the most basic freedom that democracy promises, the freedom to vote for those who will make the rules and the laws that governs one's life. Cotton's great-great-grandfather could not vote as a slave. His great-grandfather was beaten to death by the Ku Klux Klan for attempting to vote. His grandfather was prevented from voting by Klan intimidation. His father was barred from voting by poll taxes and literacy tests. Today, Javaris Cotton cannot vote because he, like many men, many black men in the United States, has been labeled a felon and is currently on parole. Cotton's story illustrates in many respects the old adage, the more things change, the more they stay the same.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing that in Florida right now, right? Absolutely. The governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, has put together a task force to go to and go ar- hunt down, you know, former felons and and people who have Who been were previously given the right to vote and
0: then the state is like, actually, no. Right. <laughs> we're gonna make you pay all this money. Right. And they're like, But you told us we could vote and these people inquired and they're like, Yeah, you can vote. And then they voted, and then the state now has a task force to go and arrest mostly black people. Yeah. This valiant effort, then, when we think about the abolition of slavery and Jim Crow, right, and the effort to achieve greater racial equity into the United States, we think about it from a legal perspective. Like, shut up, what are you arguing about? Slavery ended, we have the 13th Amendment. Right. What the end of slavery did was bring, brought new rules to the game. Right, new rules that have been justified by new rhetoric, according to Michelle Alexander, new language, new social consensus. So this dynamic, according to the scholar Re- Reva Seigel, was been dubbed "preservation through transformation." Right, and it's a process through which white privilege is maintained, though the rules and the tactics um, change. So you still keep whiteness on top. Yeah. It's like, oh, yes, we've all made all these constitutional changes, but we have not cut out root and stem the, the kinds of ways in which whiteness have been accorded power and authority, right? If we think about constitution, <laughs> you know? We've seen in the, each new generation all these new tactics that has been used for achieving the same goals, same goals that were shared by the founding fathers of denying African-American citizenship with the fundamental um, of that is the right to vote, and so the prison industrial complex is just the latest iteration. So mass incarceration, this prison boom that we see, um, lots of people, you know, have been able to get more information about it. The thirteenth documentary produced by Ava DuVernay has been very crucial in kind of, I think, bringing us all to a new consciousness. You know, and um, we're all, you know, better off for it. The Calif Browder uh, documentary, I think that was done by Jay-Z, also has, I think, done a a bit too in terms of, you know, highlighting the new ways, you know, tough on crime legislation, efforts to counteract drugs and so on, how the the privatization of prisons funded by, you know, Capitalist interests, you know, has worked to put a particular group of people, keep them in place to be exploited by the same interests, Mm -hmm. just similar, you know, to slavery. That's why Michelle Alexander called the book The New Jim Crow. Because it's operating in ways that Jim Crow operated. It's like the scarlet letter, you know that you're having uh, that you're having to wear.
1: Yeah, it's not reinventing the wheel. It's just putting the same wheel on a different on vehicle. a different
0: vehicle. Good, I love that. We have the latest a uh, joint hire. For African and African American Studies and Criminology and Sociology. Dr. Alexia Angton with us today. Welcome to Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you for having me. So, uh, Dr. Angton, uh,
2: where are you from? Okay. Where am I from? Where am I from from? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so, tell us both. <laughs> right. So I am from Texas. I'm a Texas girl through and through. Um, I'm oh. originally from East Texas. So Tyler, the little Rose City, if you've heard of Roses or Earl Campbell, it's his home. Um, but grew up mostly in the Dallas area. So um, spent time there until, of course, I went off to school. Then I went to Iowa right? Random, I know. (laughs) But it was a good decision. It was a financial decision. Um, So got a full tuition scholarship for undergrad and just kind of, they kept me there. Um, So I got all of my degrees at Iowa State, spent some time there, came back home for a year to to finish dissertating and then went back to Iowa um, to teach at Drake University. So that's where I most recently came from.
0: Can you tell us then, did you grow up Having the questions that you would then later explore in mind, did you did you see any of these kinds of issues? That did did, did you have any kinds of early encounters um, with these kinds of issues? That when once you got to grad school and decided to you know study these things, that you're like, oh, this always was kind of like maybe. Back of my mind.
2: Yeah. I don't know if when I was younger I was, like, actively thinking about these things. Mm -hmm. Um, There was stuff that would happen. Like, I was one of those kids who was very involved. Um, People would say that I was smart. You know, whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever that means, right? (laughs) Um, But, you know, like, was super involved and whatever. But I would always get in trouble for talking that was always like she's so great and thoughtful you have stuff to say don't
0: let them silence you you know I'm just saying saying. or Or challenge me so I don't have time to talk
2: you know (laughs) Um, so yeah so it always like on my report cards I just remember like always getting you know like little comments of like yeah but she's talking she's talking she's talking and I'm like okay but am I getting my work done Uh, is it good okay so like what's the point like maybe i'm bored you know right and then i'm like i'm not i'm not talking to myself so why is the other person not getting in trouble you know but that's that's whatever so i would remember those instances and like thankfully because i was a kid who was involved you know had good grades and my parents were involved that i never got into like too much trouble or like if there was a situation it was always like well we know her she's good right like she you know a solid um but as i got older i started thinking about like there are a lot of people that look like me that don't have the same background and people don't give them the benefit of the doubt. they don't get the grace no. <laughs> no they're like oh well you know we haven't seen their parents at all like or their parent right the assumption oh, yeah. that they yeah. come from you know not a nuclear family and that type of stuff and so as i got older i started to be like huh like you know I have friends who, you know, they would get in school suspensions or out of school suspensions or detention and all of these things. And I was like, well, what did you do? Like, you know, what was what happened? Right? What right. was the the cause? Um, and it always seemed like that wasn't that deep, you know, <laughs> like for you to miss school. I'm like, I don't understand how if you act up in school, the punishment that is to not be in school. school. <laughs> because cause you're hurting me, right? Like, so I didn't. I don't think I was like really thinking about it like wholly at that time. But when I got into graduate school, um, because I'm kind of an academic misfit um, in the way what, that. What like, do you
0: mean by that?
2: Cause I feel like that too. Yeah, like so. Having an interest in, you know, my undergrad was in criminal justice. And I was like, but I don't want to be a police officer, or probation officer. So, like, what what am I going to do with this, you know? Um, and so I was like, okay, we'll go to graduate school. And, I, like, I had a minor in African and African American studies and a minor in women's studies for my undergrad. And I was like, well, how can I, like, I have a race and gender perspective, but I'm also interested in crime. How can I kind of put these things together? Um, because, of course, like, academia so, like, you need to fit into this box. This is your lane. Have one interest. That's it. Right? <laughs> you get one, playboy. <laughs> or you're doing too much, right? So I'm like, okay, no. So I'm sitting here, I'm like, okay, how do I put these things together, right? And so I kind of got to my master's, um, you know, thesis of like, okay, I can put those pieces together. But as I was getting my master's and PhD, I was taking a lot of classes in education. Oh, uh, okay. Because I went, um, I took a class, somebody suggested to take a class in education. And I was like, all right, you know, whatever. So I took the class and I was like, oh, they think about things differently over here than in sociology. Huh. Okay. Um, so I was like, I like this, right? So I kept taking classes, kept taking classes. So I ended up taking like 25 credits in education. Wow. Throughout, throughout my grad. Um, they It was to the point where people were like, yeah, did you get that email from so-and-so? And I'm like, I'm not in y'all's department. <laughs> like, I, am not, I don't know who that is. And they're like, oh, yeah, I forget. You're always over here. I was like, yeah, I know. Um, but basically, I was like trying to figure out how do I, I don't know if reconcile is the word, but like how do I draw these interests together in a way that made sense? Right. And so I was like, because I still, crime has always been, you know, my interest, but I'm like, but I don't think in and of itself or the traditional ways that it's explored is enough for me. So then I was like, okay, so I was talking to a friend at a different institution, we're both getting our PhDs, and she was like, well, you know, like, what about the school to prison pipeline? Like, what about, you know, that? And I was like. You know what? That makes sense. <laughs> I was like, ah, okay. Now we know. And you so, need the whole
0: the homegirl to hold you there. Right. Did.
2: I was like, all right, because we were talking through it, you know. And she's like, okay, well, it looks like you. This is important to you now. Like, how do you, you know? So we had this conversation. I'm like, okay, but I'm like, okay. So what is it that? There is more research more recently on the school to prison pipeline, but it all focuses on black boys, um, which is warranted, right? Like, we know that they are the most at risk for experiencing the school to prison pipeline, but... There's a gap in thinking about black girls Mm. and how they experience it. And so I was like, yes, right? And then I remembered, like, oh, yeah, he used to get in trouble all the time for talking. Like, but you never got suspended. Like, that doesn't happen for everybody. Like, look into that. Right. Right. So So that's kind of how I ended up getting to, you know, this research and and making my— Misfitness, um, fit. <laughs> and say like it's okay. okay you're academic you're
0: allowed to make up words <laughs>
2: right. right and now now we call it intersectional right <laughs> we call it intersectional but at the time I was like I don't where, where do I fit you know and then I was like well I don't want to fit in just one that's the other part of it is like where do I fit but like why do I need to fit, right. you know? So I was like, I'm not going to. Uh, so I ended up coming to this um, work from this perspective because so oh, I could draw together critical perspectives from sociology, criminology, as well as education. So
1: I feel like Karee can probably speak to this as well, but when I did my grad research, a lot of it came from personal anecdotal experience that I wanted to try and suss out from a fact-based data-based perspective, right? When you think about your time uh, in school, whether it was middle school, high school, what did your middle school and high school look like? Was it diverse? What and, and, and can you kind of speak a little bit to the differences you saw from a gender perspective or a race perspective on how folks were treated based on their gender or their race?
2: Thankfully, I've had a, a lots of different experiences. Um, my elementary school was very white, right, like very white space. Um, and, you know, I had some diversity in my friends, but, like, didn't really see a whole lot of differences from an elementary perspective. Now we know that, like, kids in elementary school do get suspended and those types of things, too, um, but I don't really remember any of that. In middle school, my middle school was, like, a magnet school, but it was primarily black and Latino um, like, lower-income students. Um, and so I did—I remembered us having an SRO, right, a school resource officer, um, in our middle school, and I remember his names, like, this, like, cool, ball guy. Like, everybody loved was Officer he, So-and-so. Was he black? No, he's white. But he was, like—you know, everybody was like, oh, yeah, like, Officer So-and-so. Like, he's cool, you know, whatever. And I didn't necessarily see— too many interactions that were negative right like with him so I don't think I had even questioned the fact that we had a a police officer in school at that time I was just kind of like oh like he's just there like most people assume like oh he's just there to make sure like we're safe and you know nothing pops off right or like to break up fights because you know kids be fighting (laughs) 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 so you know I was like okay whatever um and then in high school My high school was diverse. It was the most diverse um, school in the district. Um, And so it was a combination of black, white, Latino, um, had a few Asian as well. But you could definitely see that there were... um some segregation that was happening within the school, right, in terms of classes, who's in your classes. So I was in AP. So it was like, it's very few of me, right, in those classes. um, I think we had two SROs. I don't know their names, which I guess is a good thing. Um, But I definitely do remember things happening in high school of, like, our school would be used for, like, SWAT drills. (laughs) Like, we would have SWAT drills. At our high school. So they come with the tank and like we're on lockdown. They would have the drug dogs come. What? And then sniff lockers, um, for drugs and stuff. They would have there was like a nearby apartment. Um, and so of course people were like, you know, we can't like if we fight at school, then we might get suspended and get charges. So people would go like across the street basically to these apartments to fight and then the police officers started going over there. <laughs> So it was like, is this your jurisdiction, dog? Like, I don't think so. Um, But, you know, like, people would, like, that's what would happen. So I remember, you know, folks getting arrested at school. Drugs, of course, are at most schools, unfortunately. But, like, folks getting, you know, ISS in school suspension or out of school suspension for that. Um, And so there would be some kids that, like, would get out of school suspension, be gone for three to five days, come back, fight again, and be back out. (laughs)
0: So So did your school have a therapist counselor? I mean, was that sought out as a method to to remedy the situation of kids acting out?
2: We had what was called a light counselor. Um, And so the light counselor was someone who I think was kind of supposed to serve that role um, was a person that you go to for kind of like extra stuff, like, that's going on with you. Um, My interaction with the light counselor, we had basically, like, a group that was called, like, Light Brigade. But we would do more preventative stuff of, like, targeting for, like, elementary school kids. So we would go to the elementaries and do, like, skits and stuff about, like, bullying or, like, drugs and, like, that type of stuff. But I don't remember how engaged or how much that person, the light counselor, was actually utilized to... Be a Do you between. mean
0: like light, like l i t e or l i g h t? L i g h uh, t. okay. But it was like a, an I'm, I'm for thinking seconds. about like my counselor in high school, and I was discussing this with my sister the other day. Like I went to an all-girls school, so my, the whole school was just paranoid about us getting pregnant. Of course. You know, so it was just constant, like trying, because we were supposed to be ladies. Mm-hmm. You know, so like talking about sex but in a roundabout way you know and like not at all and so our counselor was like you know of like sexual abuse like there was nothing to do with like fighting or anything like that because we were ladies you know and so it's quite interesting you know
1: my podunk little school of of, you know, I, w- I had a gradu- county school at a graduating class of 64. That should tell you how <laughs> middle of nowhere I grew man, up.
0: Man, man, you big city life, yeah, Matthew. Yeah.
1: City, city boy <laughs> City through boy, and through.
0: city boy up 3,000.
1: <laughs> we, we had a uh, school resource officer at my school. He was part of the, the, the sheriff's department. He was a deputy sheriff. And the only interaction I ever had with him, I have a brother who's two years older than me who has autism, and he would have outbursts occasionally. In school, and he had a teacher in high school who was not well equipped to be a special education teacher. I'll, I'll leave it at that. And uh, she decided the best way to to interact with my brother in the midst of an outburst was to say that he was gonna that she was gonna go get the school resource officer. Oh my gosh! Which he took to believe they're gonna handcuff me and throw me in prison and throw away the key, and so he bursts out of the classroom and starts running away from school may i remind you middle of nowhere school surrounded by cornfields there's nowhere for him to go and so my brother's just running away and i mean like he doesn't run very fast so it wasn't very hard to catch up with him (laughs) but i got but i got called out of class so you
0: would have to chase him
1: well, yeah, because uh, he didn't want the cop chasing him because oh, okay. he, in his mind, right. he said like the cop's gonna catch me. He's either gonna shoot right. me or he's gonna put me in prison. So you would
0: have to talk him down to yeah. say it's okay.
1: Yeah. Wow. So, um, so yeah. I mean, even in even in my situation, which is literally the exact opposite of your school situation, very, very rural, extraordinarily white. Like there were still like the school resource officer was well respected by those who didn't interact with them but still had structurally and systematically
0: yeah. they were put in positions to handle things that they probably shouldn't have been handling right
1: that they were that they were not equipped to do and that there are better better resourced people to do the work that a school resource officer should have been doing
2: I mean, I, th- I think the good part is that people are getting to the point where they're understanding that. Like, schools are starting to say, hey, we're not going to have police officers in schools anymore. Um, and I think it—I mean, some people, of course, are outraged, Chad. Yeah,
0: it's <laughs> Because we— you know it's, The idea of discipline and punish right. is so heavily yes. and deeply embedded yes. in our society.
2: But only some— Only discipline and punish only some. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Because I think that the people who are outraged, like, why would we not? We want to keep our kids safe and all of these things, you know, and it's like, it's not just a safety. These school resource officers are trained to be police officers. Right. That is their training. So when things happen, that's how they respond. Most of them are not like, okay, you know, let me make some connections with the students. Let them know that, like, they can come to me if something happens or They haven't had
1: training in adolescent development. Right.
2: Yes. Right. So they're used to dealing with adults. Yes. And that's, in a split second, that's how they're going to respond. And so, like, people that are like, yeah, what's to keep our kids safe? I'm like, we have RSOs on
0: campuses and there are still school shootings, yes? Exactly. I mean, what's (laughs) what's the one over in Texas the the other day that they didn't even go in the classroom? Exactly. So it's like, what is what is actually safety and safety for whom? Not not to mention the fact that many black people and black young people are mistaken for adults. Yes. Yes. And so treated accordingly. Yes. Yes. You're talking about
2: adultification. Yeah. Yeah. This idea that there's a study that talks about how even starting at age four, I think, that black girls are considered to be older. More mature, know more about mature topics, need less support, need less nurturing, like all of that. By like adults. Adults, there was a study that asked adults like kind of how do you perceive black girls? And that's what they said. It's like starting at age four. Uh So it's like if you're seeing this child as an adult, but I think it's interesting because we see the opposite when it comes to white kids. They can be 22 and they're like, oh, they're still a kid. Right. They get this kind of like um, extended adolescence. And so they're not perceived as threatening in the same way, because as if you think that a kid is more mature than they are, then you also assume that they have more culpability and they understand their actions when it is not always true. Right. Like they yeah. respond or they react, I should say, um, in these quick situations. And so it's like, but that's not the the benefit of the doubt is not afforded to all. And I think that when we think about. How does police officers being in schools make some people safe and some people unsafe? Even like you were talking about before, like, you know, having to go through metal detectors, like some students had to do that going into school. Mm -hmm. Right. We had SWAT drills and things like that of like, are we seeing that for a lot of people and just in general, schools are criminalizing students and who are the students yep. that they're criminalizing right especially tends to be students from minoritized backgrounds right students of color especially black students yep. right and latinos students with disabilities right cuz they are also um a target population that um get you know disciplined um a lot and even when we think about who's put into spe- like folks who are in special education right. which a lot of times students of color get pushed in there too right and so this this like Compounding effect.
1: We'll be right back.
3: KUAF's spring fundraiser is coming up, although it will sound a little bit different this year. We've listened to your feedback and have shortened our live on air fundraiser from five days to only three this year. And we're introducing a new way of supporting KUAF this spring through a business membership. Business memberships are ideal for companies looking to support public radio and reach new public radio listeners, especially those moving to the area looking for local services. Starting with tax-deductible gifts of $500, business member names will be read once per day for the two weeks of our spring and fall fundraisers this year. Plus, they'll be listed on our webpage for one full year become a business member before March 31st to have your business's name read each day during our spring and fall fundraisers in 2023. You can learn more about business memberships at kuaf.com slash business membership, or simply go to supportkuaf.com How
0: did you set up your research and what did you find?
2: For my dissertation, I was trying to, you know, I was really concerned with black girls and understanding their experiences with discipline. What does it have to do with them offending um, or kind of, you know, the these early stages of the school to prison pipeline. Um, and so what I did, I wanted to do, um, you know, of course, people like stats, right? People's stats, they want to know what is happening, right? So the quantitative stuff. And I also wanted to do some interviews, but then I had the very real um, goal of graduating um, sooner <laughs> rather than later that's dissertation, <laughs> dissertation is a
0: completed dissertation exactly
2: so um you know my advisor was like if you want to do interviews and things like that you can always do that later on but I don't want it to interfere with like your progress getting done so I was like all right so what I did is I did a quantitative study and I was really focused on black girls but of course In order to shine light on one population that is experiencing things, you have to compare it to other people. So what I did is I used some secondary data. There was a data set that was available to me, um, and I looked at kind of suspension, likelihood of suspension, um, for black, Latina, and white eighth-grade girls Um, because research shows that, like, middle school is a key time of being suspended um, and seeing how that, you know, impacts your life later on so um i looked at suspension looked at social bonding i was kind of curious of like if they have strong bonds to their schools will that lessen their likelihood of suspension mm-hmm. okay. what
0: do you define as strong bonds to your school so play, sport,
1: involved in play sports
2: um, involved in extracurriculars um like how much time do they spend on like homework Mm -hmm. right how what are their school grades um and even questions like um do you think that your teacher likes you right do you like going to school do you feel like your peers think it's important to be your friend like those types of questions of like how is your school do you like going to school like do you have a positive relationship with your school basically um so I was looking at variables like that and then also looking at, um, like, kind of some juvenile delinquency, right? So um, things like de- asking, it asked their mom, did does your child, like, lie, steal, um, cheat, and fight, I think, were the, the four. Um, because for the most part, you know, at that point, like, they're not doing anything rah-rah mm, in terms yeah, of, yeah. you know, like criminal behavior and that type of thing. And then I also included something that was looking at problem behavior and, I fight with that term because I don't
0: like that it's very deficit-based. Yeah, um, it's things that are probably considered normal child kids' behavior is now problematized under right. an institutionalized setting. Right. So it was basically teachers'
2: assessments of um, students' behaviors related to, like, their um, relationships with others, their approaches to learning, um, you know, those types of things. And so basically what I found was that for black girls, they were more likely to get suspended um, when I only included kind of demographic variables. So looking at, like, race um, their social class whether or not they um, had a disability those types of things and then as well as like school factors right so when I was looking at school factors of like do you go to a school that is um, predominant students of color or lower income or like is characterized as a like good school or bad school right Um, once I started adding more things what I saw is that For black girls, when I looked at school bonding um, and then I looked at the problem behavior, juvenile delinquency and put it all together, what I saw is that black girls were not significantly more likely to be suspended once those were added. But what was interesting is like when I only looked at problem behavior and delinquency and the suspension, um, that problem behavior was very significant. (laughs) but when I put everything together, it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so it was like, so what is this telling me is that more of the demographic variables are what's most important. Like basically, although we don't see the same effect, it's like, when I put it in with everything, maybe school bonding is a little bit protective, right? But then also, is it really just about
0: race? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because, I mean, if you're thinking about problem behavior, is this kind of a subjective thing, right, as a subjective assessment based on your teacher and then school bonding, one of the variables is whether your teacher likes you, Mm -hmm. right? So a teacher has that, uh, you know, uh, leeway to determine that this is disruptive behavior this is actually helpful behavior. Right. You know? Right. And I did I did include a
2: variable of teacher's race because I was wondering if there was going to be that right. problem. And it wasn't significant at all throughout any of the models, which was surprising. But when we think about it, most teachers in the U.S. are white. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yes. like, just like, so right. uh-huh. I was like, okay, well, maybe, you know, that's not happening. So white we,
0: and probably female? Yes. Definitely. Right. <laughs> yes. So I was like, yeah,
2: okay. Um, but something that was interesting, too, is, like, school grades was significant. Mm-hmm. So basically I found that, like, the lower their school grades were, the more likely they were to be suspended. Right. Which makes sense. But it's like, but are they are their grades low because they were because suspended? Because they suspended? Or, or with suspended with because, chicken and because the they egg have a right. yeah. So I was like, okay. Um, the interesting part is that for Latina girls... Um, there wasn't a really a lot that I saw, right? Like, they didn't have a higher likelihood of being suspended. So their, their results were a little bit more closer to, like, what I saw for white girls, which was interesting. Um, because we know that, like, people are racialized differently. Right. Right? So I was expecting a little bit more. Um, the thing that was most important for them was, like, uh, class, social class, um, as well as not necessarily how important school, like, not their grades, but how important grades were to them which was a little bit different. Um, and then for white girls, it was pretty much, there was a lot of things that had to be significant for them to get suspended. Right. Which is more in line with what I had seen when I was like reading and doing my literature review and that type of stuff. But it basically shows that like, if they have... Two of these things, yeah, they probably won't get in trouble. Right. right. But they have to have, like, 20. Yeah. <laughs> you know, for them to actually, like, get suspended. And so it shows that there is some definitely some, like, kind of differential racialization that is happening. But it really shows that, like, we need to rethink how we're structuring schools for different students to actually be, like, in a thriving position. Instead of just trying to survive or, like, oh, I got to go to school every day, you know. Um, so, yeah, so it was it was interesting to see those differences because I was expecting very clear differences in white and black girls, but I was more surprised that, like, Latinas didn't bring up as much. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I will say what was a limitation is that, of course, the sample sizes for black and Latina girls was a lot smaller. Mm. So most, like, I think I had about 3,000 participants and, like, over 2,000 were white. So they were driving a lot of the things that I was seeing because they were the vast majority. And so for some of the models that I wanted to run, I couldn't run because it wasn't enough of, you know, black and Latina girls. So what what
1: and this may be something you don't know the answer to and you can only speak to speculatively, but what role does family dynamics have in those relationships too, when we think of, you know, perhaps an the oldest sister with lots of younger siblings compared to the baby of the family. Do we see any sort of difference in behavior and, you know, school experience in that way?
2: That's a good question. I have not actually looked into that, you know, myself. Um, Like you said, I can only speculate, but I do think having siblings, um, I think the reputation of your older siblings does impact you. Right? Absolutely. And how people see you. Yeah. Just and like the
0: protection. <laughs> yeah. You get yeah. that kind of protective cover. I know my cousins mm-hmm. like growing growing up in Jamaica, uh, my cousin uh Jamel, Sean, and they all went to an all boys school. Mm-hmm. And the tradition is that like whatever the nickname of the first one is, is the same for all of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It's yes. yeah. like, show me one, show me two, show three, you know? Right. But basically, ho- ho- whatever perception they had of your brother, it's going to sure. be passed down to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Which
2: also is stressful, because as an older sibling...
0: <laughs> <laughs> You have to
2: set the precedent, like, of, like, the model, and that's a lot of, like, pressure um, in and of itself. But I think to that point, too, is, like, it's interesting because when we think about, you know, students being criminalized and and penalized, punished for kind of minor things, um, thinking about how um, tardies. Right. Like the tardy system. And if you are an older sibling and you have to get your get younger, your younger siblings, siblings to school ready. Yeah. and you're tardy, you know, I think it's usually most schools is like if you get three, then you get either a detention, then it becomes an in-school suspension, high school suspension, and they can uh, charge you with truancy, you know. And so it's like there's also those things of like if...
1: But they may not be factoring in that you had to make sure your, your little brother in first grade and your little sister in seventh grade got there so that you were the last one there and you had to protect them, make sure they got there first and exactly. that you were the last one there. And that may mean that you're late, but they were on time.
2: Right. Yeah. Right. So when you think about it, like, if we're penalizing students for tardies and we're not actually thinking about, well, is it because they don't have reliable right. transportation? Right. right. Right? Or their parents work multiple jobs and so – or work night shifts. So when they get home, they go to bed yeah. and, you know, all of these things. And it's like I think the issue is becoming that we're not getting to the root of the issues and the needs of the students. As usual. Um, right. Mm-hmm. Because that would be too much work. Yeah. Yeah, right? yeah. Who,
0: but, I mean, it's, it's easy to – it's easy especially when it's a certain group of people who we already have the stereotypes about we have a existing information base about this group of people that we can readily you know dismiss disregard mm-hmm. and attribute whatever perceived failures that they're having mm-hmm. to some kind of a pathology
2: I think now what we're seeing is, like, people are getting rid of their SROs and saying, well, what can we do instead, right? Like, this has not been helpful. They're looking at their data and saying, hmm, we're seeing that especially students of color are getting arrested at higher rates at schools than other students. This is not safe for them. What can we do? And so I think people are still trying to figure out what does it look like without SROs, Um because of this, they're so used to it. I mean, like, there's a quote, I forgot how it's said, but it's like, mass incarceration just is used to solve all uh, of oh, America's ills. Mm-hmm. And so in that same vein, they're like, okay, well, if we don't have police officers to, like... You know, deal with discipline and like the teachers, they have to now think about disciplining students. Like, how are they going to teach? Like, as if they can't multitask, you know. Um, and so, I think people are still figuring out what is it, what is the alternative, right? Is it more social workers, right? So, right. Um, there is a project that I'm working on um, more locally, where they did hire a social worker at a particular school, um, or some schools are um, this this project that I'm working on as well. The elementary school, they've changed to a community school model. Right. So like having um, like social services in the school right? Right. to meet the needs of the students. And so I think that is a very positive like policy um, change that can be very influential because it's more so getting at the root instead of just, you know, yeah. discipline and punish. Um, so those are, are a few of the things that I'm seeing. Um, Monique Morris's book Push Out. Yeah. I've heard of it. Um, it talks about the criminalization of black girls in schools. And so she gives some kind of ideas about what could schools look like. Right. That are, in a way, for um, all students, but especially black girls, to be able to not only, like, survive but thrive as well. So she's a great resource to to think about that, too. But I definitely, you know, it may be a controversial statement, but I do feel like we don't need police officers in schools. Like
0: I, I, You'd say that to say, you know, <laughs> I, I've been looking at Ruth Gilmore's um, um, work on the Golden Gulag um, prison surplus crisis, And a position in globalizing California where, you know, people like her and people like Angela Davis, who had long been at the forefront of prison abolition um, debate, where they, you know, Angela Davis, she posed this question about why are people so quick to assume that locking away and increasing a large proportion of the U.S. population would help those live free in a world feel safer and more secure? And she says that we have to go beyond the amelioration of prison practice, she says, acknowledging that prison reforms are also necessary, and many strides have been made internationally in that arena. Right, so we have to be able to think of measures, um, in which we can envision a, envision a social order that does not rely on the threat of, um, according to her, sequestering. People in dreadful places, designed to separate them from their communities and their families. It's like the most dehumanizing thing, right? When we think about people need human touch and they need human contact, and we've devised a system to kind of separate people out and to, you know, if you look at the punishments that have been, you know, solitary confinement and things like that, it's created to to dehumanize uh, people and to the worst form of punishment that we can actually do and
2: it's perpetual
0: like it's not like
2: people serve their time and that's it yeah like how
0: how do you like you don't (laughs) expect that person to come back out a human being if you're doing dehumanizing things to them so it's at the prison if we're talking about reform you know um reforming the behavior of that person it's not really achieving that
1: as you sit here as dr alexia and you think back to 12 year old Alexia, what would you tell her or what would you tell someone who's kind of in that place where you were at that age, where you're maybe bored in school because you're, you're smarter than the rest of the class and you just get bored and you just want to talk? And what would you say to someone like 12-year-old you to give them hope and confidence that uh, that it's not going to be that way forever?
2: Yeah. Ooh, Yeah. Twelve year old me. <laughs> what a time. I think I would definitely say do not allow for this temporary context to dim your light. Um, don't allow for talking to be seen as something that is negative. Um, because if I wasn't doing that, I wouldn't be here. Right. <laughs> like I'm a professor, so that's what I do for a living is talk. Um, so I think like more so than anything, it's like recognizing that in a lot of ways, this context may not be set up for you, but that doesn't mean that you cannot be successful in it. Um, but part of that is definitely advocating for yourself and advocating for yourself in a way that is not um, like advocating and being authentic to who you are. Because I think sometimes others may perceive you as like, oh, you're advocating for yourself, but they say it as being disrespectful right um, or arrogant or narcissistic or ar- right. right you know and it's like no like i am finished with my work like is there something else i can do right or you know can i help my classmates or things like that of like not allowing yourself to be told that you are not a leader not allowing um the way that things are shaped to be all that you can do or be or whatever um because i think a lot of times like we only are able to to be what we can see, you know? And if we're seeing, like, in this context, like, oh, I'm just being told that I'm a bad student or I'm being told that, you know, I'm disrespectful or whatever, and you're like, that's not how I know myself to be, right? How can we channel those, um... How can you channel the skills that you have, right, towards something positive? And I think to that point of, like, recognizing that not everybody's going to get it right now, (laughs) you know? Um, But eventually it will make sense and it'll all come together,
0: um even with obstacles. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so very much. I, I'm i sure our viewers uh, will be able to relate to so much of this information. We certainly were able to, you know, reflect back on, you know, things that we hadn't thought about.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: Undisciplined is hosted by Dr. Karee Banton and produced by me, Matthew Moore our associate producer, Sophia Narani. If you missed any of our live conversations from Black History Month, fear not. We've got them for you in the podcast feed. And of course, you can subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple, Stitcher, NPR One, maybe even a Zune. If you got one of those, remember Zooms?